We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About big, beefy boys. About big, beefy books. About world building. About secret libraries that also talk to you and contain dark secrets. About houses. About watching your trainer and his best friend and thinking about a threesome. It's about finding yourself, and that self is a death god. About looking for cool new accoutrements to finish your outfit. It's about Sarah J. Moss. It is about the juggernaut that is the court series. (laughs) But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we will be discussing A Court of Silver Flames by Sarah J. Moss from the the A Court of Thorns and Roses series. Yes. It is the final published installment that isn't the Christmas novel that is said to be a novella, which isn't. This is actually more recent than that. Yeah, that's what I figured. And follows it uh, chronologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my edition, the Barnes & Noble Special Edition, which has the superior cover art, cover. Um, mm-hmm. does not include a table of contents nor a back of the book. So, Isabeau, are you able to do back of the book for us? Fuck yeah. Before we dive in. Before we get in the weeds. Nesta Archeron has always been prickly, proud, swift to anger, and slow to forgive. And since the war... Since being made high fay against her will, she struggled to forget the horror she endured and find a place for herself within the strange and deadly night court. The person who ignites her temper more than any other is Cassian, the battle-scarred, winged warrior who is there at Nesta's every turn. But her temper isn't the only thing Cassian ignites. The fire between them is undeniable, and it only burns hotter as they are forced to work closely together. As the threat of war casts its shadow over them once again, Nesta and Cassian must battle monsters from within and without as they search for acceptance and healing in each other's arms. I gotta say, one of the better back of the books that I've heard from the 21st century. Honestly, and of the series, it's the most romance-sounding one. 
Yeah, but I, I've got to say, I think of the series, this is like the most, the most bestest romancist, I think. It is the most bestest romancist, for sure. Yeah. Um, it just in case you're you're meeting us for the first time, um, because we know SJM's got a lot more, got <laughs> got a lot more legs than we do. We we have discussed every book preceding this one in the Accord of Thorns and Roses series. We are going to have spoilers just throughout the conversation. Um, so just be aware of that if you'd like to read the book first um, or listen to it for free on Spotify Premium. Or if you'd like to listen to our other episodes on the earlier books in this series. Yes, to catch you up. But just like for some context, in case you have zero interest in any of those things, uh, Nesta is the oldest sister, or is she the middle sister? No, she's the oldest. She's the oldest sister um, of Feyre, who was the mm-hmm. main character of the first three books of this series. Now, I know what you're thinking. Three books sounds like a, a trilogy. Sounds like this should all be buttoned up, and indeed, many people would agree with you. Um, but instead, Sarah J. Moss came out with the holiday novella, in which we discover Nesta is not doing well in the aftermath of this big war to protect the humans from colonial invasion by the continent. And she ended up ripping off the head of a fey king of Highburn with her own hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then watching her father die after she saved this guy Cassian, who mm-hmm. she seemed to mostly have a contentious relationship with. Cassian being the general of Feyre's husband's slash mate's <laughs> army. Actually, there's like way too much to keep. <laughs> nothing so plebeian as husband. No, nothing <laughs> so. Mates. Yeah. And they're all males and females so that you don't Ugh. think they're human. Do you speaking, hate that? Speaking of humans, Nesta and her sisters started off their lives as humans, but were <laughs> made. Uh, in Nesta and Elaine's case, the two older sisters of Feyre, they were plunged into a primordial cauldron. Yeah, a primordial cauldron. Uh, if you're familiar with the Celtic legend, it's that. And <laughs> it turned her into a fae. But it also gave her like some special abilities that we don't we're not quite sure about when we embark on the on the beginning of this book. Right, because when Nesta was made, she pulled something out of the cauldron. And this is important. So, like, she's pushed in against her will because they think she might die or she'll get made or whatever. To demonstrate to the human queens that the cauldron will make them eternally youthful and magical. And beautiful. Right. And so she goes in, but she doesn't want to go in, so it's against her will. She claws something primordial out of the cauldron against the cauldron's will because the cauldron also has a sentience. This clawing out... This terrible power that she takes with her. No one can really define it. It scares a lot of people. It scares Nesta. Yeah. That's a whole thing. And then the other thing is when she did that to the cauldron, the cauldron got really angry. And then the king of Highburn was making good on his promise to the human queens. And the first human queen was the youngest and the most beautiful to go in. This woman named Brie Allen. She went in and she came out immortal, but an immortal crone. Mm -hmm. Um, So she would pretty piss about that. Yeah, she was super disappointed in the results of her elective cauldroning. She was. And she does blame Nesta. She does blame Nesta. In particular. Mm -hmm. Which is helpful because the last three books really buttoned up this conflict with Highburn, Mm -hmm. seemed to resolve this issue of the cauldron. 
So I have two questions for you, Isabeau, which I Great. think are key questions of the series. And we don't have to okay. spend a lot of time on them. The first one is, do you think that it was always expected that Nesta and Elaine would get their own books? Mm. And two, what did you think about Nesta before starting A Court of Silver Flames? Great questions. One, do I think that Sarah J. Moss started this as a trilogy and then it like blossomed into a kind of juggernaut that she is going to make her money beyond her wildest dreams and so she doesn't (laughs) want to put it down? So she has found stories for everyone else? I don't know. Um, If this were a romance series, absolutely not. Like, absolutely everyone's going to get a story. This is like deep in like the, the lore of romance. Like, this is like a... Johanna Lindsay, like the Malcolms, you know, like or the Mallorys, and like you know, everybody like has descendants and sisters, the Bridgertons, and best friends. <laughs> the Bridgertons, exactly. It's like this is like in keeping with romance, this does not strike me odd. In mm-hmm. keeping with fantasy, this should have been a trilogy. And if there were to be more stuff about the Archeron sisters, it wouldn't have been about the sisters. Likely, it would have been about Feyre's children. Yeah. So no, I don't know. No, I like I have no idea. Sarah J. Moss is a genius. I don't know what she's thinking, but it seems to me that she's working in romance. So this doesn't strike me odd. What did I think about Nesta before I started this book? I hated Nesta in the first one, hated Nesta in the second one, kind of got on board with Nesta in the third one, found myself very, very moved by Nesta's humanity and truthfulness as she's depicted because she's also the yeah. first depiction that we get outside as uh, outside of Feyre's first person point of view so that was also like a welcome fucking change <laughs> um, so I came into Silver Flames not on Nesta's uh, good side but uh, much more neutral than I'd been before mm-hmm. how about you I mean I I loved Nesta since I first met her in the first book I was like, she's got points, and everyone (laughs) seems to be ignoring her. Like, she seems to be the only person being honest about how terrible everything is. Mm -hmm. And she seems to be the only person with, like, a clear motivation beyond her own survival, which definitely Mm -hmm. comes in here, which is, like, protecting her sister and eventually protecting the realm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's, she just seemed like a real ass bitch. Um, but I always a like... A brat is another version of that word. I, d- I don't think she was ever... I would beg for specifics. I feel like when she was cruel and when she was unlikable, mm-hmm. she was unlikable corresponding appropriately to the stakes of self-preservation. Mm. And... I don't think she was being like a little snoot. Like her life really fucking sucked because of it her did. dad. Mm-hmm. And we get we gain a little bit in this book, a little bit more color and contour to how she was mm-hmm. feeling at that time, mm-hmm. which is self-destructive. So, mm-hmm. you know, trigger warning, this book does deal with themes of self-destruction and sexual assault a lot. Mm-hmm. I think she was actually quite... To me, a brat can be someone who's immature and and selfish in their motivations. And I I do tend to enjoy those characters a lot as well. But I I don't I did not find Nesta to ever be immature or self-serving. I mean, she's a lane serving. And I think like that's the part that I find hard, like in the first three books about Nesta, where it's like Feyre has done a lot to keep body and soul together and like 
Nesta has benefited from that. And I'm not like, you know, I'm not saying that like she needs to be grateful and she's not. <laughs> but she could have been a little bit nicer. And then when Feyre and the whole night court shows up to like protect them when like Highborn is th- or Highburn is threatening, she's just like really, really mean to Feyre. And it's like she's so mean to Feyre all the time. And I'm like, that's a little much. Yeah. And like the thing that they like, that's that's the receipts that I would bring where it's like her antipathy and out and out cruelty to the youngest sister who kept body and soul together is like, that just seems unnecessary and like bratty at that point. I think when it is important to remember that when Feyre returns, she's a Fae and she's That's brought true. High Fae with her. She and has. all the human world knew of the High Fae because they have significantly shorter lifespans mm-hmm. is that there was a time when they were uh, enslaved mm-hmm. and abused and they are still hunted for sport by the Fae. So I think Nesta's resentment might have been uh, and, and fear might have been a little bit more. It wasn't just her younger sister returning. Sure. When she came back. I, uh, yeah. So I always liked Nesta. I don't think that when a court of thorn and roses was started. And then when the other two books were mapped, I don't think there was any concept that this story about Nesta would come to fruition. Sure. There is a bonus chapter of the second book in the series, A Court of Mist and Fury, mm-hmm. um, in which Cassian comes to visit Nesta because she's spying um, on the queens on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And he needs to get some information from her. And that chapter very much sets up that these two are a mated pair, mm-hmm. which is affirmed in the holiday novella. But even before... Nesta is turned right when she's mortal. Cassian has this recognition mm-hmm. of them being destined or whatever. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even think that bonus chapter was like written at the same time. Of mm-hmm. Fury. Like, I feel like the whole thing was I, I think the whole thing is uh, what's it called when you like uh, there's a term for it. A money grab? No, no. Like, there's a term for it whenever you go back and, like, revise your series to incorporate. It's like, I mean, Tolkien did it with The Hobbit, where he Mm -hmm. changed things that happened in The Hobbit to help, like, explain what's going to happen in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Is it, like, backpaying or something? There's some kind of cutesy term for it. I'm so frustrated I can't think of it. But please continue to scream it at your uh, headphones. I I think that this is that. Mm. I don't think it's a money grab, though. Mm. I think as she was writing, she realized she wanted to have this kind of more add like heft or grandiosity to the series mm. that she had written by connecting them. And she had this story. I think the Crescent City novel is probably what led to the novella and eventually Silver Flames to tie in all three of her series, The Glass Throne, A Court of Thorn and Roses, and Crescent City together. I mean, she does sign huge contracts to put out these books, but I I don't think it's just Kat. I think she really has... I think she's a true... 
we talked about this in A Court of Thorn and Roses. I think she's like a true believer. Like she's a true lover of fantasy and romance. And if she can do it, uh, she'll follow her natural inclination to make everything part of one giant world. Yeah. I mean, like I was being super flippant. I don't think certainly after reading her extensive acknowledgments, like this is a person (laughs) who cares very deeply about this series. And I think it's interesting that you say that like this one is going to have like the most weight, the most heft, the most grandiosity. Cause like in some ways that's true, but in some ways that's also fucking insane because the third one in this series is about like an interfay war where you've got like, and I, the humans. I, I she, like, she wants to add grandiosity to her legacy as a whole. Not that this book was the most grandiose. That she's trying to, like, thread things together in order yeah. to create more heft for all of her series mm-hmm. um, combined. Okay. Yeah. I'm just saying that seems like a crazy goal when you've already written, like, a martial epic. Yeah. Having said that, I think this book is, of the three that precede it, the best and the most grandiose. Okay. I don't think the three even in combination, are as good emotionally, structurally, or adventurously than this. Okay. How do you feel? I don't feel that way about it. Because people can't see you pursing your lips and slowly drinking your tea (laughs) on the podcast. I don't feel that way about it. I think um, this book becomes untethered from itself in some very particular ways. I do think that this book has, it is the most invested in its message, I think. Okay. Um, And like the message of found family and the message, the messaging around like recovery and recovery in a lot of senses. So we, we had the content warning earlier about sexual violence. There's a ton of sexual violence in this text not like on the page but people who have experienced have suffered it. it yeah yeah and memories of it come up and people do like they do talk it like it doesn't happen in situ but the memories and the like the mm-hmm. narrative of it do come up a couple of times yeah and generalized kind of violence against women yeah uh, especially against women yeah i feel like for a series that is like pretty invested in violence and like violence generally, this book also feels like the most violence against women. Yeah. Or most interested in it. Yeah. Most interested in it. Depictions, fallouts, recoveries, which was a lot. Yeah. Where do you where do you want to start with structure or lore building? Let's start talking about that um the the sexual violence since we're already okay. there. So where do you want to start with it? Well, just so in A Court of Mist and Fury, we learned that Resand, the king of this realm, has the esta- night court. established a uh, library that is entirely operated by women who are survivors of some kind of violence. And it allows them to have an existence away from not just men, but society at large. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they spend their whole lives there. Sometimes they just go there for a season. 
but it's like this place of recovery. However, it operates a lot like a regular library with like academic, there are academics who were raped there and they have research assistants. Uh, and the, the connection is largely that they were all somehow attacked. And um, so that's one facet. Uh, this library is attached to the house where our main character is sent to live after she faces an intervention from her family. So Nesta, opening part one of the series, is called to the floor by her sister Feyre, who is the high lady of the night court. And she tells mm-hmm. her, you have to start training with Cassian and you have to live in this enchanted house of wind because the house will keep wine away from you. And she also has no ability to leave the house because it's 10,000 steps, stair steps down to the the town would be Mm -hmm. the only way that she could get there because she doesn't have wings or the ability to winnow. So she's trapped there by her family. And in the attached to this house in the mountain is this secret library. The other aspect is so Nesta starts working at the library, reshelving books as part of her what rehabilitation sure her community service yeah and while she's there she meets uh, one of her friends Gwen Gwen who was brutally raped during Highburn's invasion of their continent um, she was a priestess who was at a temple that had a piece of the cauldron Asriel <laughs> Cassian and Rhysand's best friend it's just so weird to explain all this uh, yeah. finds her and takes her to the library And then they have another friend that they make named Emery, who is one of the only women of this Illyrian bat-winged race in the mountains that Cassian, Asriel, and Rhysand belong to. And she owns her own shop, um, Mm -hmm. but her wings were essentially docked, Mm -hmm. which is now a forbidden practice by Rhysand. And she's constantly kind of being harassed by her uncle's family because they feel like the shop should belong to them. Mm -hmm. And in general, they have this highly gendered society, the Illyrians, Mm -hmm. um, that causes a lot of violence and degradation. Okay. And then we also find out that Nesta had a a close call with a guy Mm -hmm. she was dating when she tried to end things. Mm -hmm. Morrigan's sexual violence is also brought up several times, both sort of as an illusion, but also like they, they they talk about the violence of her being left at the fall court a lot. Yeah. And then there's the whole thing in the back half with the three friends and like the, the fear that they all have when they're left on the mountain. Yeah. The threat of sexual violence always kind of is looming there. Looming large. Morrigan, she had sex with Cassian. Cassian. Um, when she was promised to Eris, who is like the prince of the autumn court. Mm-hmm. And to punish her, her family drove iron spikes through her hands and her stomach and left her in the autumn court. Borderlands, yeah. Borderlands to be found by Eris and his brother Lucian, who end up doing nothing about it, I guess, is the story we're told. Azrael is also the one who rescues Morrigan. So he shows up quite a bit as like the avenging angel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In scenes of sexual violence, he's also, as you said, the one who rescues Gwen specifically. Yeah. Which I only just 
put together now in this conversation. So that's, <laughs> I don't know, tidbit to hold on to. Azrael is always the avenging angel and all of this sexual violence kind of serves to prove like what a benevolent policymaker Resand is. Absolutely. And how enlightened he is and how, you know, much he thinks about gender parity and like that kind of stuff. I think it's also kind of crucial that I I think a lot of this violence against women serves to demonstrate that our male (laughs) love interests are somehow rare and better. Yeah. Like the only good males are the ones that are in the Archeron sisters circle already. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is a threat. And there's also this thing of, like, generalized fixation on sexual violence against women. And I I find, in particular, white women Mm -hmm. talk about it all the fucking time. And I think it's because a lot of times, as white women, we get really fixated on the ways in which we are oppressed. Mm. And this seems like the biggest, worst thing that could happen to a white woman. But that also speaks to like the overweighting we have on like white women's sexuality. Mm-hmm. Like it's something that can be stolen and is therefore mm-hmm. like precious and must be mm-hmm. protected, mm-hmm. which I don't know. I have a weird, I feel like there's this episode of This American Life where this woman, her sister is murdered and she talks about trying to find justice and how she became obsessed with wanting to know whether or not her sister was raped. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of stops herself and she's like, why would I even care about that? Like the worst thing that could happen to her happened to her. She was murdered. Mm -hmm. Like, why do I care whether or not this was another aspect of it? I feel like if there's violence against women, there's somehow a necessity that it has to be related to sexuality so often Mm -hmm. and like intentional oppression in this book. So the Morrigan isn't raped, but she's um, punished for having sex. Mm -hmm. Emery, likewise, is not raped, but she's Mm -hmm. being physically controlled by her male relatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that this conversation is actually bringing to the fore is like, I wouldn't call like this book is not shy about explicit sex. And I would I would go so far as to call it pretty sex positive. All of the violence against women aside. But what you brought up between the Morrigan and even the Archeron sisters, like there's there's a weird sort of throwaway line that Cassian has where it's like he knows that Nest is no longer a virgin and he's like he like doesn't even want to know because he's like he'd kill that male and it's like, oh I thought we were past this. And then there's like there'll be stuff like that. And like that'll it comes up a lot with the Illyrians like this like and it comes up with the courts of the High Fae, this like prize on virginity, which seems out of step with what I would say, like the values of the night court are. But it is like there in ways that I think are strange. Mm-hmm. And like you you like make a good point where it's like women who enjoy their sexuality, like or are take control of it in some way are often punished in this text. But then they're like rescued, saved or recovered by the night court. And like I'm not sure what that is doing. And there's like a whole thing about possession, which and like by no means is this Sarah J. Moss's space alone about possession. (laughs) I don't mean to make that argument at all. But there's this whole thing where, spoiler alert, Feyre is pregnant. 
And they're like, what are we going to tell Tamlin? He might just blow the whole spring court or just like die because the woman he loved has now been impregnated by another male who essentially owns her because they're fated mates. And it's like, what a strange aside. And that's all it is. It's important to note that, like, yeah, they're like, oh, Tamlin is going to lose his mind. But Tamlin has always been a backwards-ass guy since the second book. An old-fashioned backwards-ass guy. I think what's more telling to me is how Resand is treated and Mm. treats Feyre, including, like, having her, like, covered in protective spells, even when she's just around their chosen family. He doesn't allow her to do certain things They've created a essentially a murder-suicide pact with one another. Yep. Like, that is all inherently icky, but the book still deeply loves Resand. Yes. There is, like, no question that this book loves Resand, except for Nesta. Which, and, like, here's where we're bringing it around again. Because, like, one of the other things that Resand does that's real ick is that... He learns pretty early that this child of his and Feyre's has wings and everyone's like stoked, yay, wings, except it's really bad because Feyre doesn't have the right hips to birth an Illyrian baby. I think they say anatomy, keeping it pretty loose. Anatomy, whatever it is inside of her pelvis that won't do it. And it's really scary. And Reese tells everybody not to tell Feyre that she's going to die, that there's never been a successful birth of an Illyrian child to a non-Illyrian creature. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, no one can tell her that she's going to die. I'm going to figure it out. I'm not going to tell her. And and like, rather than like, and that, that felt like a real breach for me. For Resand and Feyre, who, like, I yeah. believe that they, like, had good communication. I was like, well, pff, no. They are the perfect couple. Clearly not, Morgan. Clearly not. Well, and <laughs> here's the thing. It's not just, like, Resand, because Nesta does trouble the waters, but here's where I find that the text comes up short of actually being critical of Resand, is that Nesta decides that she's going to tell her sister, yeah. this is what's happening to you. She decides that her sister deserves to know that this is going... And she doesn't say it in the best way. I also don't think she decides that Feyre needs to know. She, like, does it to hurt Feyre. But I still think she did the right thing. Sure. I I (laughs) 100% agree with you. should have told her. But when she does it, she's, like, sent on a troubled teen's hike hike in the mountains Mm -hmm. for five days, wherein she, like, passes out. Like, they really punish her. For telling Feyre her own diagnosis. Yeah, her own medical, like, stuff. And, like, that's the thing. So, like, Nesta does it in, like, an an outburst where it's like, oh, you think you have the perfect relationship. You think that these people care about you. They don't. Do you know that you're going to die in Uh childbirth? Which is true. Sure. But also (laughs) fucking sucks. You know, like, she did it in a way for maximum effect. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, that's part of... Like, Nesta's whole thing is she's, like, extremely good at strategy. And so, like, part of her strategy has been turned inward. So, like, no one is as mean to Nesta as Nesta is to herself. Her, like, internal narrative is really cruel. But because her internal narrative is so cruel, she says the meanest things about herself before anyone else can say them. Fine. But, like, she is really mean. And, like, that's an instance where it's, like, I 
I agreed with Nesta and Nesta's actions, but like the way it was delivered was pretty tough. And then we did go on this outward bound troubled teen hike, which felt like such a <laughs> left turn. And like, not only does she pass out, but like she's like dehydrated on this mountain. And then she like weeps for a day. And then she just like bangs Cassian for three more. And then everybody comes back and she's like, she like doesn't apologize until the end. And I'm like, Nesta doesn't get better at apologies to Feyre, which is upsetting to me personally. <laughs> um, I felt personally aggrieved, but she does get better at apologies generally. And so like, I think that's an interesting comment that this text is making about like how hard it is to like, make amends with the people closest to you versus like people who meet you at different parts of your path. But yeah, like resand keeping that information from Feyre felt like a real breakage. Not just resand, but everyone, everyone. else. It, not mm-hmm. only did resand withhold that information, he gave it to other people. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Including Nesta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like ultimately he was the one who shared that knowledge and nesta does have a breakdown about it and they're like yeah you were a dick and and no (laughs) but no one gives her credit for to her for being the one who said something yeah while being like fascinated and really wanting to root women in the violence they can expect from men It also tends to reward these sort of more passive forms of violence. And it reminds me of like the true crime craze and how everyone's obsessed with serial killers because no one wants, but no one wants to address the fact that most murders are intimate partners killing their wives and girlfriends. It's someone you know, it's not some random guy with a gold Volkswagen going across the country, right? It's. Yeah. Yeah. This is clear in Silver Flames. How, having said that, I feel like Cassian doesn't actually have these problems that Reese has. Do you want to say more about that? I find him to be a jealous person. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we're already in such a gender essentialist culture in this book. Absolutely. Yeah. The general being like, I want you to like me more than you like other people seems like mm-hmm. the mildest. Like, <laughs> Literally, there's murder-suicide packs going on. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just by contrast. I think it's okay. I I mean, getting jealous is something that happens. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't mean you're evolved, but it also doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you're a bad person. And in fact, I found some of his expressions of jealousy to be some of the more romantic, tingly parts of the book. Mm. Because I think partially because he's he's clearly trying to manage it. He's constantly thinking he shouldn't feel this way and he shouldn't react this way and he has no right and all of that. All of those wonderful things. Meanwhile, Asriel is being also a dick, only in this bonus chapter, so we can't talk about it. But how do, how do you feel about Cassian? I think Cassian is... It doesn't fall into the same problems as Resand potentially, mm-hmm. because his character is less cunning, right? There's just like yeah. there's just an extreme earnestness to yeah. Cassian, right? Like that's how Nesta finds out about stuff that she's not supposed to know about, and that's how like he just like accidentally confesses that like they've taken this poll about like Nesta's intervention. And then she like storms down the castle and like he accidentally tells her this other stuff. And it's like, (laughs) and it's because like Cassian is like 
generally bad at subterfuge and he's like really bad at hiding his feelings. And so like, I think he comes by a quality through that route. (laughs) He's incapable of (laughs) practicing oppression. It's not that he's too, he's too dumb to oppress. No, but kind of in that vein, that's not how I would describe it, but like kind of in that vein where it's like, um, It's almost, and like, this isn't true at all, but like the feeling I get from reading Cassian's internality is one that's like, he's aware of context, but like context doesn't necessarily fill his interactions. And so like, what I mean by that is like someone shows up or he meets someone and like knows of them or whatever. And then like, it's the interaction that they're having. Like Cassian has a sort of present facingness about him that is like has less futurity and has less to do with the past Mm -hmm. and like he holds on to his hurts but not in the same way as like Asriel does and certainly not in the same way as like everyone brings up like what happened to more like more brings up what happens Mm -hmm. to more like Asriel brings it up Rhysand brings it up Cassian brings it up too but he brings it up to Eris when he's like why did you do it and he's the first person yeah. to ask the why question, even though, like, that's been sort of, like, the backbeat of this, like, repetition of Moore's violence has been, like, this why thing. Yeah. So it's, like, finally a fucking character asked the question that's been the subtext of this whole fucking repetition. So, like, thank you, Cassian. But I yeah. think it's, like, Cassian exists in the present in a way that other characters don't, including Rhysand. Yeah. When Reese tells him that the baby has wings, Cassian's first and, like, fullest expression is just joy. And then Reese is like, no, the wings are bad, remember? And he's like, oh, yeah, literally no one's ever lived. <laughs> and it's like, and I, think, I feel like that's, like, kind of Cassian in a nutshell. So it's not that he doesn't, like, mm-hmm. it's not that he can't oppress. That's not it. But I think he, like, meets people in present tense. Yeah. And like he's aware of backstory, but it doesn't inform his present tense in the same way that other characters like make it foundational. He he refuses to lie to Nesta. Yes. He's also thinks that he's like incapable of it. <laughs> but I, I think he actually makes that choice based on respect because he will try to lie to Eris mm-hmm. and Lucian. Mm-hmm. But he does not even make the attempt with Nesta. And I think it's mm-hmm. both because he knows her in a way the rest of her family seems not to, which is deeply upsetting to me in the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. But also because I think he genuinely respects her. And so he's making yeah. that conscious choice that he doesn't need to. But it, yeah, that kind of rec- one of the recurring themes through the book is that Cassian is a bad courtier. Mm-hmm. He's bad at manipulation where meanwhile Nesta is she's like a machine at it she's so Mm -hmm. good at social manipulation and part of her arc is learning to use those powers for good Mm -hmm. and not for evil or cruelty and I I feel like that moment of her telling her sister Mm -hmm. that she's going to die is kind of presented as like oh no she's backsliding and that's why we must send her to the woods as punishment. Mm-hmm. But Feyre has a conversation with Cassian in Mindspeak where Cassian says, I think she was trying to avenge both of you. Mm-hmm. Feyre says she agrees. It's mm-hmm. this, everyone else seems to always want to assume the worst of her except mm-hmm. for Feyre and Cassian. Mm-hmm. 
which which I liked. I liked that Cassian always assumed the best and always mm-hmm. tried to bring out the best in her. And so you mm-hmm. don't get these kind of it made me feel like every conflict within their romantic relationship was very grounded and mm-hmm. true to who they were. I will also say Nesta and Cassian are significantly more self-aware than Feyre and Resand ever were in the previous books. Feyre and Resand seem written like fantasy romance heroes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Whereas I feel like Cassian and Nesta are much more rooted in something similar to like a Lorcan sale. Yes. Meaning flawed, constantly having to renegotiate, deciding to do embarrassing things and settle and not say things and say things, self-deprecating and having to push limits as opposed to like just dis- felt like Pharaoh was always just like discovering she had no limits all the time. Yeah. And Nesta is incredibly powerful, we learn, but she seems mm-hmm. to be actually growing and pushing as opposed to just like, I can fly. <laughs> and like the difference there is like Feyre's not afraid of her power at any point. Like she's not afraid of what she can do. And she wasn't afraid of what she can do in the woods other than killing the wolf, which like she didn't like. Mm-hmm. She didn't like that capability. But she's never afraid of herself in the way that, like, Nesta seems to have a pretty visceral fear about, even before she's made, about the way her, she can be so cutting. Mm -hmm. And she has, like, a pretty visceral fear after she's made about this power that she can feel inside of herself. And, like, it turns her into, like, this cold flame. And she also really hates that other, like, she can see the fear in others. Like, she hates that, right? Because it's, like, that mirrored effect. And the only person who doesn't really seem afraid of her in either version or all versions is Cassian. And I think, like, that feels very Laura Kinsale. I think you're absolutely right. And, like, you beautifully just said that, like, it's this renegotiation that they have. And I think that's absolutely true. There's, like, this amazing point where they have this miscommunication where, like, Nesta's like, we're just having sex. And Cassian's like, I take thee at thy word. (laughs) And he, like, doesn't stay the night. And he also doesn't, like, knock on her door again. He, like, leaves the ball entirely in her court after their first, like, sex in bed together. And she, like, seeks him out a few days later, and she's like, hey, like, haven't knocked on my door. And he's like, yeah, and, like, you've been busy. I wanted to respect that. And she's like, uh, was it not good for you? And he's like, how the fuck could you think that? And she's like, well, you haven't knocked on my door. And, like, it was that moment where it's like, these two beautiful, flawed characters, like, have this renegotiation that's so pleasant. And also the fact that it's in third person made it possible (laughs) to see both of them in ways that were like... So true. What a critical perspective change. Yes. Mm -hmm. Maybe the most important one for this series. (laughs) So when we first talked about A Court of Thorns and Roses, one of the discussions we had was, is this more of a fantasy or is this more of a romance? Mm -hmm. And I think we landed on the fact that this is a... It was a very meta romance. Mm Mm-hmm. But in this book, you really see it leans on romance practices, Mm -hmm. such as the cuddly third. Mm -hmm. But also the book is structured in such a way that it follows a personal arc more than Mm -hmm. a political arc, which I think the other books lean on a political arc and the politics and world building aren't that great. So (laughs) although are they? I don't know. Um, I didn't enjoy it. 
the political the political arcs were not my favorite. I didn't find them that captivating. And so this book is in four parts. And the first one we see Nesta and Cassian, I think, are both the titular novices. Cassian mm-hmm. is being pushed outside of his comfort zone to do spycraft, essentially. And Nesta is being pushed out of her comfort zone to... First of all, she gets interventioned. Yeah, she's pushed into recovery against her will. <laughs> yeah. By the way, it's not like a real intervention because, like, two people there actually liked her. Everyone else was just super mean. And then she, over the course of that first part, settles into her life and starts discovering people who actually like her, like Gwen, the House of Wind itself. Mm-hmm. And Cassian starts finding enemies, which I think Mm -hmm. is pretty new for him. He tends to be one of the things that frustrates Nesta about Cassian is how universally beloved he is. Mm -hmm. And then in Blade, we start to see the conflicts arise. They start, she starts to build actually her, her friend group and she's sharing her personal history and we get the coolest part in the book for me which is the mask retrieval which is when she Mm -hmm. we sort of discover what her powers are and they are humongous yeah ginormous uh bigger than anybody's power including reese's yeah that scene is like bananas good yeah and at the end is where they send her on the troubled teen retreat sure can we just like go back to the idea of the dread trove or or hat sack yeah i just wanted to note what the arc of that part is yeah the revelation of her power but not just the revelation of her power but the idea that she can wield her gifts in a in a productive way Mm -hmm. and then she backslides and then she gets sent to the troubled teen retreat and then she does her tearful apology the outward bound yeah yeah so the dread trove, <laughs> since the cauldron has been vanished, uh, the dread trove is the new like big piece that they have to retrieve to prevent a war. And it's these three pieces. It's a crown, a harp, and what's the other one? The a mask. death mask. Yeah, the death mask. And so they have to get all three pieces. And then if you wield the three pieces, you're like a master of time and space and death. We find out that Nesta's power is like essentially death itself. Or that manifests in some really interesting ways. But when she finds the mask in this really scary situation, again, threat of sexual violence. Like this Kelpie comes out of the water and is going to rape her and then murder her. Uh, She finds the mask at the bottom of this like damned lake and then like comes out of it having killed the Kelpie and then has like summoned dead soldiers out of like the dead marshes and two towers, if you know what I mean. And it just like comes out of the water with this mask on her face and like these dead heroes behind her. It, it was so good. It was incredibly cinematic. What's your note about the dead, the dread trove? The dread trove is like the new cauldron. So it's like, here's a new archival like adventure thing that we have to get to prevent a war. So like, Part of that is, like, plot device, but also, like, kind of felt like a weird retread of, like, something that we'd done before. But then also, like, the other thing that was actually really funny is, like, here's, like, these powerful artifacts that would have been really important during the war that we just fought with Hybrin. How come we didn't know about it? Wink, wink, shrug, shrug. And they're like, oh, because the Dread Trove didn't want us to know. And it's a magical sentience that keeps itself hidden. Um, And I was like, you know what? I'm not mad about that world building. <laughs> it's, 
It's a little sloppy. It's a little asking too much of me. But you know what? Okay, let's keep going. I don't I think it works because I think the dread trove being used as a tool to find the cauldron because light calls to like, but the formerly human queen can't really wield that ability properly is interesting. I think the dread trove also works really well, providing like an impetus to this overarching adventure. Maybe we could have just gotten away with the fact that this crone wants revenge on Nesta. Yeah. But the dread trove does provide like structured adventure. Mm-hmm, it does. It creates episodes. Mm-hmm. For Nesta and Cassian to work their way through mm-hmm. um, a, a conflict for them to to fight. The adventures in this don't lack for the fact that this book relies on romance as its kind of guiding principle, but I do feel like the previous novels, the romance kind of floundered because of its reliance on fantasy. But maybe that's just me. I feel like there are people who did not get bored with Feyre and Resand. Maybe it was just me. I didn't get bored with them on their martial epic, but I was also interested in the martial epic. I was bored of Feyre. I can say that. But I'd like to get into the structure of the... Dread Trove and the Crone and sort of like the stakes of this, because I think you're right to point out that this book is so much more personal and so much more invested in this personal. You could call it a redemptive arc if you wanted. I don't necessarily want to call it that. I might call it something like personal discovery, Um, maybe a rebuilding. The way in which that like I was invested in Nesta and Cassian, like the episodes are fine. I didn't need the crone on top of it or the crone would have been fine and I didn't need the dread trove on top of it. You know, there was like, I feel like Nest is so powerful even without the dread trove that the dread trove made her like an ubermensch in a way that like I expected to go somewhere and it like didn't go where it could have. I want to talk about the last part, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, You mean the part four? Yeah. It's when she wakes up at the in the trial. Yeah, that. I want to talk about the trial. Because I think it, like, pulls together all of my weird parts. Okay, so you want to talk about your weirdest part. Okay. The trial is this thing that happens in Illyrian culture where, like, all the young studs go to this mountain and, like, fight each other to the death with zero weapons And, like, you got to make it to the top of this mountain. And, like, you make it to the top of the mountain. You're, like, it also decides your class of warrior, which is, like, a whole thing. (laughs) And, like, girls aren't allowed to do it. So, of course, Nesta, Gwen, her friend, and Emery, her other friend, are absconded with and set on the mountain. Because they've been training together using this... Um, ancient and forgotten methodology called the Valkyrie, based on the Valkyrie, which were a group of women warriors in the first war, which is the war where the Mm -hmm. humans were set free. Right, 500 years ago. And, like, part of that lore is that, like, the Illyrians left the Valkyrie to die. And so, like, there are no more Valkyrie. And so, like, that's the whole thing. It turns out, and so, like, there's already been enough with the Illyrians, and if you've been through this whole series, it's like, there's already been enough where you can genuinely believe that the Illyrians would have picked up Gwen, Emery, and Nesta, thrown them on the mountain without clothes or weapons in their nightgowns to 
like fend for themselves. If you really think you can be a warrior, then let's see it. And there's this threat of sexual violence. And like, there's a discussion of it earlier too. I a hundred percent believed Delirian's capable of doing that. And it's like, but then it turns out that it's this crone who has done it as a way of getting Nesta away from the house of wind. And so that she can like destroy her and all this other stuff. And I'm like, I'm not sure that we needed both or that we needed the crone to be behind it. Oh, because like it was scary enough if it was the Illyrians, like it says enough about the villainy of the culture and like society of the Illyrians that they would do something like this. Yeah. And so for her to be pulling the strings of this is like uh, that felt like a hat on a hat. Mm. And then there are multiple scenes on the trial that are like very, very moving. And the three of them, Gwen, Nesta, and Emery, pull each other out of some, like, pretty serious scrapes. They kill a bunch of people, which is pretty intense. Yeah. They make some hard choices. Make some hard choices. And then at the end, the crone shows up after Nesta's just had the shit totally kicked out of her. And she shows up at the very end with Cassian in tow. And she's ensorcelled Cassian. Mm-hmm. Using the... The dread trove. Using the crown. Um, because Nesta has secured the harp and the mask. And so she's ensorcelled Cassian and she's like, I'm going to make your lover kill you. And that'll be terrible. And uh-huh. it'll be terrible for both of you. <laughs> and um, sure, absolutely. Yeah. I liked that part. I thought that was great. I just didn't need everything that preceded it. You know what I mean? It like It felt like so many apexes and so like how much higher can this go and like in terms of the stakes in terms of whatever and then Cassian won't kill her which is awesome because like he can fight through the ensorcelment he's gonna stab himself rather than kill Nesta which is so great and then she just like yeah un (laughs) (laughs) and is is also like a encapsulation of Nesta's logic when they were when her and her family were in the cabin where she was like, I'd rather die than be one of the reasons my family starves. Yeah. And then she unmakes the crone, like just, just turns her into Adams, which is super cool. And then she takes the crown and she now has all the pieces of the dread trove and she uh, goes home and saves her sister from death and childbirth. Yeah. And like. Which I still don't fully understand how that happened. I was like, she gave some of the power back, and like, I don't know. There was like a time warp. And it's like. (laughs) Well, and there's like this whole thing where each string of the harp represents a different thing. It's it's quite complicated. What I I enjoy, see, like, I, I can see like the hat on the hat thing, but from reading the holiday novella. Mm hmm. This author needs this length to tell this story. And this the author needs these things like the dread trove to exist sure. to create that length. Like, it's incredibly long, but if you, and I can see how it's a hat on a hat, but I feel like with the dread trove, sure, the book does work. Like, the scenes are not wasted. Sure. Because we've got to do the, like, seduction of Eris to get, like, yeah. the investment in Eris. And we've got to mm-hmm. get each of these items because Nesta has to learn how to channel her incredible power and make it apparent sure. and actually be a useful person in her family. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this stuff with the dread trove 
is not necessarily world building, which I agree is is in general not great in this series. But mm-hmm. I do feel like it's lore building, which is mm-hmm. I think something this this book and A Court of Florin and Roses had quite a bit of lore building does really yeah. well. Yeah. And so I enjoyed going into the prison and interacting with these yeah. other like dead gods um, to discover the, the history behind the trove. Um, yeah. And I think the the queen wanting not just revenge, but new power mm-hmm. justifies her seek the seeking out of the trove in addition to um, trying to kill Nesta. Maybe that's my big thing where it's like, I agree with all of what you just said. I am not not a fan of the trove. I'm not not a fan <laughs> of Brie Allen, this weird crone queen who's like personally pissed at Nesta, which like seems like the exact thing a crone would do. You know, it's like can't be mad at Highburn because Highburn's dead. Mm-hmm. Cool. Transfer that aggression somewhere. I think the thing that I was mad about is that like Brie Allen felt like a top notch villain Mm -hmm. and she was dispatched so quickly (laughs) and then the real villain was dying in childbirth or like death itself like i know what i mean it's like she was just like is the real villain (laughs) resand is the the real villain and (laughs) (laughs) but you know what i mean because like and then like it felt like so much buildup, and then she's just poof i was like oh what and because like because, like, the next book is going to be about Elaine, and it's going to be, like, the magician Koshi or whatever, and he's a deathless god that's been trapped at the lake. So it's, like, it's like kind of a reveal mm-hmm. of, like, this wasn't the big boss. This was, like, the season one boss. But yeah. I'm not in season one. I'm in, like, whatever this is. Yeah. And the villainy that's my in part. this book is also something that I think hues perhaps too closely to romance because people mm. are either villains or allies across the board. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think some of the best characters in fantasy are these like chaotic neutrals. Yes. And I think the wizard by the lake who now has a name and is now the bar- bone carver's brother mm-hmm. would have been a great, great option for kind of like a too big to care entity. Yes. In this world. And instead he's made into a villain, which I... Mm-hmm. did not enjoy but I'm, I'm very you know i am terribly curious about what they do with elaine's story sure absolutely deep i'm not gonna stop reading this my weirdest part is if i may because it's Please. deeply connected okay is the the treatment of the illyrian culture in this text sure which is <laughs> speak more on the Illyrian culture ideology problem of this time. Well, speaking of like everything is a villain or an ally, mm. the entire Illyrian culture is like they need their soldiers, just like mm-hmm. the the Darkbringer army run by Kerr in the city, the mm-hmm. hewn city under the mountain, which is also an evil society. Mm-hmm. Why do why do we have two evil societies? And one is like sophisticated evil, and one mm-hmm. is primitive evil. And I say that mm-hmm. knowing how loaded of a term that is, but also thinking that's probably the way I'm meant to conceptualize it. It doesn't seem like the Illyrians have indoor plumbing, and they 100% have indoor plumbing at the Hewn City. Yeah, it's always been attributed to like the stubbornness of the Illyrians, but it is this largely like you're right it seems like 
They don't have indoor plumbing, but it is where the three main boys are from, which are Asriel, Cassian, and Resand. All three of those boys had like bad situations with their mothers being Cassian's mom was raped. I'm not sure about, I think Asriel's mom was just dead. And then Resand's mom was just like an outcast. So these three outcasts are like the lords of the land. And they Mm -hmm. keep bringing these um, Valyrian, trying to integrate these Valyrian values into this community. But they don't do that to the Hewn City. They don't like make laws about female equality in the Hewn City Mm -mm. or like don't torture people because they do torture people in the Hewn City. Mm -hmm. Asriel himself, there is a scene Mm -hmm. where... They talk about, they get specific. We always know Asriel is the spy master and he has these shadows that whisper to him and that he does make torture on people. And mm-hmm. we actually see it on the page. And, and Farah says, I don't think this was worthwhile because these men are cursed. They're out of their mind, which kind of implies that like torture is justified <laughs> if you're like... In, within your, if you have all your faculties, like, then it's fair game. Like, torture's okay. Mm-hmm. Even though the book specifically cites the fact that everyone doing the torture had been previously tortured themselves, right? Physically, mm-hmm. you know, it talks about the the blood leaking out of these men and, like, waking up these serpents under the floor that they would mm-hmm. be slowly eaten by over the course of a week once their information was gathered. Like, that's extremely backwards, and I'm very happy that Cassian and Asriel and Resand are like, you know, there should be gender equality here. But like their idea of gender equality is like also make the women warriors just like you, because not only do we need to make torture, but we need to make war. And it's like the the more sophisticated society gets like all the secret stuff and is like not respected, but has indoor plumbing. And then this other society that serves this other kind of dark purpose, which is war making. They're always at odds with it, but then they demand this Spartan existence from them so that they can win wars down the road. It seems incredibly hypocritical. It also seems like deeply imperialist relationship between Valyria and Illyria. (laughs) I think, yeah, you just hit the nail on the head, right? And the imperialism comes in not only just this cultural chauvinism, right, where it's like, it, we're we're better than you because of how we treat our ladies. Yes, cultural. It's it's a gentleman. It's a te- tip of the hat and a lady type of yeah <laughs> superiority that doesn't actually mean anything. Right, because they're they're performing torture and violence in other ways. And you're absolutely right. They like make no laws about the Hewn City, and like the Hewn City commits like deeply similar crimes. And like, does it matter that they don't? clip the wings of their women when they prize virginity at the same kinds of price. Yeah, and they're just like, hey, that was fucked up when they sent more away <laughs> and like put her in yeah. charge, but they haven't actually punished anyone for it. Right, and so there's that part of it. But then like back to this amazing point you've made about imperialism by Valaris onto the Illyrians, the real world allegory feels really fraught there. Yes. Yeah. Especially with the wing clipping of females. Yes. Which feels like 
a rather ham-fisted discussion of uh, female genital mutilation. There's even a scene with Emery when Cassian's like, well, who's the doctor that did it to you? Maybe we can fix it. And she's like, my dad did it. And it's like, that just... And, like, to your earlier point about, like, white women only talking about sexual violence as, like... Because it's the kind of oppression that they're most likely to, like receive like this feels like a conversation that I heard a lot where it's like well you know what they do to their girls and it's like there's so much here (laughs) yeah that feels really lightly sketched it would be weird for the wing clipping to not be an allegory for sexual violence since every other kind of violence against women is more directly related i think what you're getting at isabeau is mutilation is bad but it is not an excuse to belittle or write off an entire group of like culture no of people or hold them accountable. And it is meant to be like... It's a shorthand for backward. It, it's it's more than that, though. It's like her wings are clipped after the law is passed. So it implies yes. that like Illyrians are somehow impossible to negotiate with. Mm-hmm. That they are, they are bound to these... To this violent practice. And if they're bound to this violent practice, then why shouldn't we exploit them? Mm-hmm. And they are being exploited. Cassian talks about struggling with the idea that a lot of Illyrian warriors died in this second war that are the events of the previous three books. Because he's a general and, and he is responsible for those lives lost. Mm-hmm. And people in the community are holding him responsible. And he's like, how can we get this community to like, we need them to trust us again. We can't have them doing an uprising. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you just seem to have this singular mission of like changing them, but only in so far as they remain useful to you in this specific way. Yeah. And so I wrote about this in my master's thesis, even when people, (laughs) um, even when texts don't have race in the same Mm -hmm. way that we as a culture have race, they will racialize. Um, through mm-hmm. these different fantastical realms. And I think the racialization is really explicit with the Illyrians because we also have the Hewn City to compare it against, mm-hmm. which is full of fey people. And also the White-coded. fact that... Yeah. And Resand is understood as like his father is a fey and his mother is an Illyrian. And so he talks about having an identity crisis around that. But his mom more closely values-wise aligned with the Fae, so that makes him a better Illyrian. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. Cassian struggles with regularly being belittled by Eris and being called, like, a barbarian and a savage. I mean, it's there on the page, and so the the political stuff that is not self-aware in this book is, is very apparent. People get up in arms about, you know, Reese's skin color changing from book to book. Um, but I think the Illyrians are a much clearer example of a fucked up <laughs> worldview that this book holds. Yes. And that's my weirdest part. Yeah, that's super weird. I guess it just uh, became clear after the fourth book because I need to read 2,000 pages to... <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> come to that conclusion. Although the Illyrians didn't exist in the first book. And barely in the yeah. second one. Like, we had Cassian and Azrael, yeah. but not in the same way. And we certainly didn't know about their cultural practices around their women other than to know that they mm. were bad and backwards. And, like, we got way more of it yeah. on the page in this one. So it makes sense to me that, like... And also, like, the the vagueness of them being backward. Like, you're right. Like, you're right. Eris does use the language of primitive brute and savage mm-hmm. at Cassian a lot. And Cassian uses it about himself, too. Mm-hmm. Especially when he's, like, in a, you know, bad place thinking about, like, not deserving Nesta. Yeah, not yeah. good. Who is the skinniest of the Archeron sisters. She is the skinniest the of the Archeron sisters. And the most yeah. refined... Had the most time mm-hmm. with mom. <laughs> Which also makes her a bad person. Another weird Clearly. part. Moms are bad. Part. Um, the two girls who were beloved by their coward father are overall better people <laughs> than their their sister who is their mother's creature. All right. Well, yeah, that, let's that hit checks down. out. Let's give the people what they came for. Sexiest Sexiest part. part. I want to run some stats by you, Isabeau. There are one, two, three, four, five, six explicit sex scenes in this book, meaning not masturbating, not dreams, actual on page. Okay. Getting down. It's the most Mm -hmm. we've ever had. Um, Let's see. 40 pages of sex. Okay. That's a lot. That, that's a, that's this a pretty lot. big bang for your buck. It is. Most of the time, you're getting like six pages in a 300-page book. Mm-hmm. This is 40 in a 750, 760-page book. Yeah. It is the romanciest of the romance. <laughs> um, and those... And the sexiest of the sex I feel like we sexy. should talk about sexiest part and sex and, and favorite sex scene as two separate entities I love that for distinction. this bad boy. Thank you. Because I, too, want to Good. talk about things other than the sex scenes, but I feel like I need to honor these sex scenes. Um, Fair. All right. So which do you want to start with? I'll start with part. Okay. Uh, it both surprised me and, like, happens pretty early. So um, it didn't surprise me that I found it sexy. It surprised me that it existed in this text because it also felt like a departure <laughs> from the other books. So, Yeah. Nesta is doing her recovery. She's working out all the time with Cassie, and he's super hot. We got a we get a lot of body image stuff in this one. Uh, lots of rippling. No one makes me want to work out more than Sarah J. Moss. So it's kind of the perfect Same. New Year's read. She makes the like soreness after exercise sound so nice. Yeah, especially with a trainer like Cassian, who's just, like, amazingly hot and also knows it and knows that you're into him. Anyway, like, that whole part is sexy in and of itself. But she has this moment where, like, Asriel comes into, like, the practice ring. And then Nesta is, like, Asriel's actually the prettiest of Cassian, Resand, and Asriel. And, like, nobody really talks mm-hmm. enough about the shadow singer being the prettiest. And then she's like, can you imagine Cassian railing me from behind and me giving <laughs> Asriel a blowjob? And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was like, we are out of Kansas under um, no circumstances is this book now intended for audiences less than 17. <laughs> 
and I was like, oh, hello, Nesta, welcome to the party I didn't know I was at. And I was like, it just, it took me aback because it's like this, and it's the exact way that like, um, a moment of attraction then just like visualizes in the mind and then like is just like swept away again, which is also why it's incredibly sexy and stood out to me. Mm. Um, Isabel, I have some big news for you. Hmm. There's That's like a fan service? No, well, yeah, 100%. But there, right. Sarah J. Moss wrote an entire threesome scene with Asriel, Nesta, and Cassian. Where is it? Not in our book. She took yeah. it out. Why? Why would she take it out? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to text you this TikTok. So you can... You can hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Because that's another, mouth. like, weirdest part that I bring it up, where it's like, this book could be so much more queer. And, like, that seems like a perfect example. Yeah. Like, Cassian and well, Azrael should make out with each other a little bit. It also makes sense, because it goes through a lot of trouble in talking about how Azrael feels more comfortable around Nesta than he does around most people because of her frankness. Mm-hmm. Like it, the book sets him up as like similar to Cassian and like he understands Nesta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They would have had a perfect threesome. Yeah, they would have had a perfect threesome. I also think like Eris is very clearly Nesta and they're going to do mm-hmm. something with Eris. And so they needed to have this enormous story about Nessa's redemption so that they can cut to the chase a lot quicker with Eris in this next book. Mm. That's my other theory. But we should probably do a bonus over all the fan theories. But I just sent you a TikTok Mm. of Sarah J. Moss explaining why she removed the threesome. Fucking stupid. Because she wanted to sell it to teens? She said she couldn't face her family if she included it. Real window into the... (laughs) psyche there um but yeah that was originally supposed to be like a full-blown thing that makes total sense to me in every single way it makes less narrative sense to not have it yeah what's your sexiest part not seen my sexiest part is one of nesta's many adventures is that she has to seduce eris on the dance floor mm-hmm. at the winter solstice event in the hewn city and so she learns all these dances from the morrigan so that she can be really adept at them and she nails it she's just like firing on all engines and at this point in the story she's gone on She's learned how to use her powers for good, and she's learned how to manage her own emotions. This is also, like, the most new-agey book about, like, exercise, meditation, go to church. (laughs) Also, if you're starting AA, I think this book would be good for you. But (laughs) it does kind of have the 12 steps by the end. It does. It does. And so Nesta is just, like, firing on all engines. She's seducing Eris. They're about to dance for a second song, and then Cassian cuts in. He's very Mm -hmm. abrupt. He's very short about it. But then he's able to keep up with her, and it's because he's been practicing with the Morrigan because he wanted to be able. He knew she was a really good dancer, and he wanted to keep up with her. And he has also been going outside of his comfort zone and making himself feel foolish and uncomfortable to make her Mm -hmm. happy. And at the end, she has this, like, big smile and it was it was also sexy because she Eris denigrates Cassian and she has to think like don't look like don't get too emotionally invested and 
more on this book being self-aware, it's because she feels really bad for how she's treated Cassian in the past. Yeah. And she really wants to hurt herself for it. So she'll, she's afraid she'll hurt Eris for it. It's just beautiful. It was so moving. I actually teared up the first time I read it. And then I also teared up when Cassian, he had people that point out and have a problem with the fact that he never explicitly says, I love you in this book. But when he gives her, there are better things to say. Yeah, exactly. It's like Cassian <laughs> says it in a thousand ways. And yeah, over a thousand pages. Ways. Significantly like, more meaningful ways. And whenever he, and I just want to acknowledge this part, when the, before their mating bond sets into place, when he gives her the little, like, essentially when he makes her a mix CD. Yeah. <laughs> a magical mix CD. And she has, she's overwhelmed by it. And he kind of decides that he's just going to lay it all out there and Mm -hmm. say how he really feels. And it's like, oh, it was just, it it was just wonderful and romantic. And it held up the second and third time that I read it as well. Those are my sexiest parts. I enjoy Cassian's jealousy Mm -hmm. (laughs) more than I should probably. Well, because like it, his jealousy, I think it feels good to indulge in because it it doesn't really externalize. No, it doesn't feel violent. It feels pretty safe. Right, because he knows that he shouldn't feel it, so it's him beating himself up. And so then it's just an internality of him liking Nesta so much versus, like, in other jealousy stories we've read, somebody, like, bristles or, like, you know, is like, uh, like needs to be leashed. And, like, that's just yeah. not Cassian's jealousy here. So it does feel safe to indulge in mm-hmm. in a way that's, like, pleasant. Yeah. Yeah, it, I hear it that. Feels self-aware and self-deprecating in a yeah. winsome way. Yeah, he's <sighs> very winsome. What is your sexiest sex scene? Oh, man. Okay. Who um, oh boy. Who mm. oh boy is right. So there's there's that mating bonds. I just want... Can I give, like, a, a roundup real quick sure. of all of them? Great. Spoiler alert. Yeah. So we start <laughs> off where wherein she ends up uh, giving him what I would call a um, an impromptu HJ, a hand job. Mm-hmm. In the hallway. In the hallway after she tries to climb the stairs mm-hmm. so that she can get drunk. There's another time when she gives him a blowjob. I'm actually mm-hmm. thinking I might have undersold the... No, no, no. You're missing a cunnilingus scene between those two. Mm-hmm. He comes in to her room while she's reading a romance novel, very meta, mm-hmm. and performs cunnilingus to return the favor. Yep, of the hand job. Then he, she gives him a blowjob in the dining room because he feels bad because Eris said mean things to him. Mm-hmm. And she wants to make him feel better. Yeah. <laughs> you really took the wind out of that one's sails there. But I think it was always implied. It was, was always she, implied. Like, that's her, she's like, I can't say words to make him feel better. You know what I can do? She yeah. like literally thinks that. There's Exactly. And then it like concludes like triumphantly and unproblematically like as in the book isn't problematizing it where she's like and he felt great <laughs> yes, like, check good mark. job perfect solution <laughs> <laughs> don't apologize just suck him off <laughs> just suck him off don't tell him that you care <laughs> show him that you care just show him he's gonna like it a lot better then there's the what a bathtub 
Mm-hmm. After she discovers that she gets that death mask and commands that army, and that's the in the like night palace or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they have, I think it's set up so that we understand what like their normal sex is like, where they have sex on his desk, mm-hmm. over his desk, and then finally the mating bond love making scene. And how could you pick just one? I would say, can you go first? I feel like you have a more confident answer here. Okay. I mean, okay. So like. Knock one off my list. One of the things that I found both a little bit funny and notable was that um, Cassian takes Nesta from behind a lot, Mm -hmm. which is a divergence from the sex scenes that we've had previously in the texts also they have a lot of like non p and v sex which is a divergence it is so (laughs) and they also have like multiple sex sessions over the course of like a day and a night like they're just like so they're multiple interludes or like different positions or like there's like movement yeah um which i like so like i think i like the um it's the one after the bathtub where it's been a couple of days and she's like, why haven't mm-hmm. you come to see me? And it's, so it's not the mutual masturbation, which is very sexy. Or it's not mutual. She's like, you can't touch yourself. I'm going to tell you what I like while I touch myself. Yeah. And then the sex after that, which was, you know, crazy. At one point, he, like, tells her to, like, hang on to the headboard one mm-hmm. thing that is funny about their sex scenes is that, like, Cassian is always roaring when he comes. Yeah, it's not pleasant <laughs> in the audiobook, I will say. I mean, God love her for, like, putting her whole, her whole back into it. She did, and it's, like, it's all the time he's roaring. <laughs> so he's, like, he's just Roared. roaring into Nesta, roaring on Nesta, roaring Nesta. It's, it's, it's like... The repetition of roar is quite, it's a lot. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, that, that second one after the masturbation, I was like, yeah, this is, this is it. This is, this is top tits for me. So that's when he walks in on her reading the book. And now Morgan. Bathtub scene is too obvious. I won't choose it. Okay. I think it's, I think. Souls touching souls. (sighs) Man, if there was ever a souls touching souls sex scene to take home all the bananas for me, it would be this one. <laughs> it's very good. I like the I like the two, if I may if I may do two, the first two, which are the or the first and third, which are the the BJ and the HJ. Mm-hmm. I like those a lot because mm-hmm. I think it shows like like a certain trepidation that is really interesting. Like I think those scenes have excellent tension. Mm-hmm. Just like the one you described, you chose is a scene of tension. They're not even sure how like Cassian knows that they're mates, but she doesn't and she doesn't even know if he likes her or not really. And also they they're so clumsy. Mhm. But also so reckless that I, mm-hmm. I find them to be endearing in a way mm-hmm. <laughs> that the other ones aren't. But like these, I really want to know what book Sarah J. Moss read between <laughs> Wings and Ruin and this, mm. because Wings and Ruin, we have them like 
boinking in a war tent and there's mm-hmm. like people having diarrhea and dying all around them. Mm-hmm. And then we get these like crisp and we get a lot of them like crisp, effective, <laughs> varied sex scenes. Like what did, what what changed? Maybe like becoming less self-conscious, even though she took out the threesome scene. Yeah. And maybe we'll get another one later. You know what I mean? Because I do think that part of this is like a romance writer shedding the internal tethers of family or whatever it is that's keeping her that was keeping her pinned a bit. Or just like a a need to do something less romancy, because I think Mm -hmm. where this book really succeeds for me is that it like I said, it leans onto the the personal character arc dotted with adventures, fantasy adventures along the way. Mm The central relationship of Cassian and Nesta is the two of them helping one another to, like, grow and change and realize and become more assured and grounded versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's the ultimate arc of the story, which isn't true in the other series. No, it's not. Not no. at all. Yeah, it's just, like, so romancy. It is very romancy. So is this a romance for you? Oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Same. Another 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 banger. And like honestly, I love this book so much mm-hmm. that it makes me dislike the other <laughs> <laughs> I feel a little resentful. Like we could have been doing this the whole time. We could have been doing this the whole time. And it also has made me realize that A Court of Thorn and Roses, the first book, is my favorite book out of that original triplicate. Mm-hmm. Because the best parts of that story are the lore. Mm-hmm. And I think later on she gets too political and she gets too world buildy. But mm-hmm. wh- what do you think, Isabeau? Is it a woe or a no? Because you said you felt like this book got unwieldy. Yeah, in all the ways that I feel like the cart loses its loses itself a bit. With the cart author. loses itself, that old chestnut. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's like one of the <laughs> wheels is off, both of the wheels are gone, the axles are broken, but we're still rolling. I think like, you know, I'm not, I'm like, this book could have been 300 more pages and I still would have delighted in it, you know? And it's like, and I think like that's the thing with this author. And you asked me last time, are you going to invest in any other of the Sarah J Moss universe? And I'm like, I'm not interested in that. Like, I have so much fun with this. I don't need to, like... Mm-hmm. And if they, like, show up in my Court of Thorn and Roses series, cool, whatever. I don't I don't need to Easter egg that shit. I don't need a Marvel, you know, multi-universe Cinematic thing. Cinematic universe, yeah. It's not... F- like, that part isn't what I enjoy. I Like, I kind of... I don't mind when the cart comes apart. Because, like, I'm always charmed... I'm always curious. I'm always like, oh, there's something (laughs) sticky here. There's something worth talking about. I think that's the other thing that I really love about these books is like, they're so fucking meaty. They're so cinematic. They're so fucking weird. The ideology is all over the fucking place. Yeah. It's like. It's so revelatory of our current moment, too. Like the fact that not just like the stuff we talked about with the Illyrians and imperialism, the fact that she cut out a threesome scene, but like the fact that she, we're we're constantly being told the new house resand built for Farah is cool because it has shades of ivory and sand. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it, it's such a it's such a mirror. 
Yeah, right. It just and I and I like I like all of that about it too because it in some ways it feels yeah, it feels like a mirror, it feels like a like a lookbook or like uh, it just yeah, it's like flypaper. Everything sticks to it. Like I recognize many different elements from other stories, from other lore. I yes. I'm also just like excited that like a juggernaut like this is as popular as, as it is. And like, I'm always mm-hmm. super excited when a female author like breaks, you know, multiple bonds and fantasy yeah. and like romance. Like I think, like I like it for all the things that it is. I like it for all the things that it represents. I also like the parts where it's fucked up and is just like id and like has problems that are worth investigating and like holding to account. Like I, like you sent me a TikTok about skin tone in the main characters and I was like this is a really interesting conversation to have and I think the fact that this text can bear it and is like worth having is like really good and so yeah like it's a romance for me because the sex scenes are fucking phenomenal and like the story between Cassian and Nesta is so great but also because it's so fucking weird it's just like a weird ass fucking book is this how does this compare to the rest of the series for you? I would okay, so I probably have what I would maybe like a weird one where it's like Court of Mist and Fury and Wings and Ruin are the same book for me. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they're just it's be she was told to split them and she did because whatever. <laughs> it's like yeah. they're 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 one book. So really yeah. I think of like the first two mm-hmm. Court of Thorns and Roses and then the Resand yeah. mate books mm-hmm. I would say Quarter Throne and Roses is my favorite and then this uh-huh. one and then the Resand books the reason why I like Court of Throne and Roses more I don't like the like the sex scenes are just better in this one it's it's because I find Nesta's I like the cuddly third that really helped if this had been in Nesta's perspective I think it probably would have been my least favorite other than the Quarter Frost and Starlight because I get really tired of Nesta being like I hate Fe- or she never hates Feyre, but she like doesn't like her, and she's like mean to her for reasons that feel um, unfulfilled to me. Mm-hmm. And then this book does seem to have a, a blind spot with like sibling relationships in general. Yeah, and I think like yeah, and like she gets into this whole headspace where she's like, Amran chose Feyre over me, and I'm like. Mm. bitch please there are a lot of reasons why Amran and like this whole choosing narrative that she has and she says it multiple times like one of the big problems of the entire series is repetition Mm. um for like not for a fact it just seems like an accident I guess I don't know but like that's a particular one where it's like Amran isn't choosing favor over you and like the fact that you even have to continue to narrativize it that way in three different parts where it's like, I'm watching you grow and you're still describing it this way. And you're still hurt that Amron who understood you, but now doesn't understand you and like picked Feyre. It's like, so she has this competition with Feyre that like, she can never really get her arms around, which is why that part of her repetitious stuff is just like, not that interesting to me and reminded me a lot of the parts of Feyre that I don't like in first person. And that doesn't exist in the same way in A Court of Thorn and Roses, where you really have a fish out of water. Yeah. Yeah. I also think A Court of Thorn and Roses benefits from relying on lore building, like I said, but like also kind of following a tried and true structure. Yeah. Yeah. But this is very good. Everyone should read it. 
very good. <laughs> yeah, let's see if we can get this into the hands of Joe Biden. <laughs> um, That's a good joke. Everyone should read this. We, I think we could solve a few problems. I think we could, too. Yeah. With All that. right. I'll loosen your stays. But never your principles. <laughs> Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted and produced by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. Editing and mixing for this episode was done by Steve Keel. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at woemans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.